0: I thought I'd start with a bit of a quote from Richard Hayes. Richard Hayes is one of my favorite Bible scholars, and he wrote a book called Reading Backwards, in which he goes through each of the four Gospels and um, writes about the ways that they use and allude to the Old Testament and how the Gospel writers are bringing Old Testament ideas and images and and even quotes forward into their works and um, using them in new ways. So he has this analogy of a theater to describe the way that the two Testaments interact with one another. Um, So let me just read. This is Richard Hayes. He writes, It is as though the primary action of the Gospels is played out on center stage in front of the floodlights, while a screen at the back of the stage displays a kaleidoscopic series of flickering images from Israel's scripture. So he's saying that the New Testament stuff is happening with the characters on the stage, and behind them is a screen where corresponding images from Israel's scriptures are are playing out. So here's the rest of the quote. If the viewer pays careful attention, there are many moments when the words or gestures of the characters on stage mirror something of the shifting backdrop, or is it the other way around? So that's, that's his analogy of the way that as we read the Old Testament, it's mirroring something that is is yet to come, and as we read the New Testament, it's mirroring something that has has already happened so this is this is where the title Reading Backwards comes from so in in the Gospels, especially, we are reading the creative literary works of smart people who are drawing on the Old Testament sources that are previous to them and bringing them into the the new testament and so there's this continuity, which is really what we're exploring here and that is also very true of the idea of a garden um the big picture of the garden is is that it's the archetypal place where humanity and god dwell together in peace and flourishing so that's the that's the big picture five miles up view and when in Genesis 3, when humanity is exiled from the garden, God chooses other points in time throughout the history of the scriptures to meet with his people again. And those we see that those are like little gardens, little gardens of Eden. Uh, and as, as we'll see shortly, there's there's these little markers that you see in Genesis 2 that are sprinkled throughout all the all the other meeting places to evoke the Edenness of them. So this week, we are going to look at the geography of Eden. We'll look again at that. We'll look at the, how the tabernacle and the temple were decorated. Jesus' gardens, there were several of those, and the garden temple of the new creation at the, at the end of the Bible. First week, we talked about how the uncreated state in the ancient mind wasn't nothingness, but it was um, chaotic, a dark, chaotic ocean. And that's what you see in the first two verses of Genesis. And then in the days of creation, God uh, separates the water up and down and side to side. And when he separates it horizontally, he makes the land appear. And as we've said before, the psalmists envision that as a mountain erupting out of the waters. And on day three and day six, he creates plant life at at the top of that mountain, surrounded by the sea of chaos and fills it with things. So that, that's the Genesis one version of the creation of the garden. And then in Genesis two, you get a zoomed in version of what, what is happening in the garden. So this is how, this is how biblical patterns work. We, um, y- if you can read it with, um, an eye for the the interconnectedness of the images. You can begin to see, to see these like ideas or images or themes or concepts cluster together, and then they appear over and over again throughout the scriptures. So we aren't going to read all of Genesis 2. I'm just gonna assume that you have read it in the past. I, I've got it up here on the screen. Um, and we're just gonna take a minute, and this this part is gonna involve your your in. You saying things, so be prepared to unmute yourselves. But let's just take, let's just notice things. It's, it's as if Genesis two is a, a painting in front of us, and you're standing in a museum, and you're just noticing things about it. And we're going to make a list of the things that we notice and see those markers of the garden appear elsewhere in the Bible. So when you when you scroll through Genesis two, what do you see? What do you notice? What are what are its aspects? There's no wrong
1: answers here, so don't be shy. I'm going to get you started. There's a river,
0: right? Mm -hmm. We talked about that last time. What else?
1: Precious precious metals and minerals?
0: Yes, gemstones are mentioned, and and minerals. Mm -hmm.
2: It was good to see. It was pleasant to the sight.
0: It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. I've got a list of about 15, so really don't be shy.
2: I always was struck by the plant, planted, like I pictured his hands getting in the dirt, and that was funny to me.
0: That God planted a garden. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's, the,
0: that's a different kind of creation than Genesis one, where he's he's speaking things.
2: Right. Oh, in the east. <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: God planted a garden in the east. What else? Trees. Trees. Yep. Lots of trees, a few trees.
3: Well, you we can eat from all of them except one. It sounds like abundant.
0: Right, there's trees and there's abundant food. Mm-hmm. They're all they're all good for food,
2: and they're beautiful for the eyes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a place of beauty and satisfaction, abundance. The tree of life. There's two special trees. Uh, in the midst of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of testing or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What else? Beasts and birds. They're animals. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it seems to be uh, animals in humanity living in accord.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Precious stones, gold.
0: Precious stones and gold. Mm-hmm. All of these that we've said so far will recur uh, throughout the, the other instances of the garden
2: pattern we're going to look at. Um, I think it says, uh, I can't see, but um, that the the tree of testing, as you call it, wasn't that at the center?
0: Yes, the tree of life is at the center in the midst of the garden. Where's that at? Yeah. Verse nine, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil.
2: So it sounds like both there. And I just remember it like once my, a pastor, he goes, don't think of that knowledge tree like it's all like a witch, wicked thing. It's just sitting there with the other one, you know, and that, that was a different concept to me.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, there's a sense that they are near spatially. Right which is an interesting oh. idea that if, you, if you're interacting with one, you would be in range of the other as well.
2: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And the, isn't it interesting that they are in the center of the garden?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you
0: had a drone on, on this, this garden we're reading about, and you started right on top of the tree of life and then you the drone flew up and you got you saw more and more your range increased what observations what what, what might you see
2: or rivers
0: yes one river that splits into other rivers and what, where do they go what's going on with those other rivers
2: go into other lands,
0: the other lands. Yep. Down, down this mountain. So if you, if you're thinking of it from, from the side view, Eden's at the top and the rivers go down to all the other lands from the top. You have the center of the garden and there's rivers and over here, there's other lands. Any other observations?
3: Notice that there is loneliness and there is naming.
0: Loneliness and naming. Mm. Yep, both of those things are part of the story here.
2: I think it's, to me, it's very interesting, like, especially the river part, that it's so detailed. It almost Mm -hmm. sounds like a geography book or a tourist, you know, or a, a documentary, you know. Like, I mean, look at all that and it went here and then this went here. So I think that's why I always hear it like very, um, literally.
0: Yeah. Because it's detailed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We chatted and a little bit. There.
2: Even a- mm-hmm.
0: We talked a little bit last time when we were looking at the river about what some meanings of that are. I was trying to make the argument that this isn't, that's not best understood as a literal map, but a meaning map, a relation, an intended relationship between what's happening in Eden and the paths along which it's that that goodness is supposed to spread to all the other lands. But because right. Adam and Eve choose to eat the fruit that they are forbidden, instead ruin spreads to all the other lands. And then you see that ruin taking taking root, so to speak in those other lands and those four lands that are mentioned become the evil empires of the old Testament. So that's without going back into the details that we got into. Um, yeah, that, that'd be a snapshot of my take on what's going on with that very detailed geographical digression in Genesis two There's a few other things. I want to make sure we notice about this, this this garden pattern, the features of it. So I I was trying to get at the, there is a, from above, there's a, there's three sections. You have the tree of life at the center and the rest of the garden. And then beyond that, these other lands. So there's almost a sense of progressing holiness as you move westward. So the other lands are East further from the tree of life. And then as you move West, Things closer to the tree of life, things get more holy. Now, I'm, I'm reading, I'm taking things from elsewhere in the Bible that are developed and that we're going to look at in a minute and reading that back, reading backwards into Genesis 2. Um, but that's, I, that's part of what's going on here. Uh, a few other things. You have humanity, male and female. Now, Adam and Eve are there. They are God's image bearers designed to work and keep it. And the, those words, work and keep the garden, are avad and shamar. And they are the same words used for the priests in the temple, so, which is an interesting connection. And I, I hope um, I hope that connection will, will make sense. We'll, we'll be coming back to that in a minute, but it's worth pausing just to meditate on that sometime. What does it mean? What's the connection between the temple and Eden? What is the connection between humans the calling of humanity the basic job and adam and eve's job and a priest job in a temple there's a lot of richness there go ahead
2: is keep is keep like guard and work is like um you know dig and make it better or are there is there a difference in those two or you can develop it later i was just wondering
0: well we're here now so let's um let's dive into the wonders of step bible so we've got work esv the esv translates it as work here and it means to serve avad and when you click on the word you get a sidebar it's used 262 times and these are these are the meanings so to serve as subjects to work to serve to labor to do so you can click on these other instances and get a feel for the ways that that word is used and keep shamar is used 442 times. It means to keep, to guard, to observe, to give heed, to have charge of, to protect, to watch as a watchman might. So as, as we interact with these words, I, I talked about it in the first week as you, if you don't, if you aren't raised in ancient Hebrew, which none of us are, the words can be like empty buckets of meaning, but you can fill the meaning buckets by For one, just reading the definition, and then reading the ways that the other that word appears in other moments in the Bible, and you get the context, and you can kind of build, color in the definition of of the words, and then all that meaning um, works backward into all the other moments the the word is used. So you don't have to go to seminary and get a fancy degree to begin to inform yourself of the Hebrew. It's one of the things that I was, I'm, I'm hoping people will at least be introduced to how to use step Bible to start that, that process. Okay. Um, here is a quote from GK Beale about uh, the, the things that the task that Adam and Eve are given in, uh, in Genesis one and Genesis two. So G.K. Beale writes, it was God's intention that his human vice regent, whom he installed in the garden sanctuary, would extend worldwide the boundaries of that sanctuary and of God's presence. So there is this idea in the Bible. It's not so clearly and explicitly stated as, as Beale is stating it, but it's there that Eden was not supposed to have fixed boundaries, but ever expanding boundaries. So he writes, it's God's intention that his human vice regent whom he installed in what he calls the garden sanctuary would extend worldwide the boundaries of that sanctuary and of God's presence. Okay. So that, as you know, is not the way the story plays out. Genesis three happens. uh, They eat from the fruit from which they are not supposed to eat and they're exiled from the garden. So humanity is separated from God's immediate presence. And the rest of the Bible is the story of how God might again dwell with his people. However, the exile still abides uh, for a long time. And you can see that in the restrictions that are placed at times in those those places where God appears with his people, like the most holy place. You can't just waltz in there. The exile is still manifested. All right, we are going to talk briefly about the tabernacle and the temple and how they were shaped, um, how they were decorated, what, what those decorations might mean, but do I want to just pause for questions to see if anything's um, bouncing around your head that we can address or clear up.
2: When you just mentioned the exile, you don't have to go into this, but, um, are you, I've always thought it was like to protect them. he, exiled them sometimes it on the rest of the bible every time there's all restrictions it sounds like god's mad and punishing and all and i've always tried to see it more as a protection but you don't have to get into it
0: yes the the stated one of the stated purposes of the exile is to separate newly falling humanity from the tree of life so that they wouldn't live forever in in this state
2: in that state right
0: yeah. So there is a sense of a, it's a, mer- it's a severe mercy.
2: Yes. Okay.
0: Which God's interventions often, often take the form of a severe mercy in the Bible. You can think of the flood or um, many times in the prophets, that kind of a association is, is
1: evoked.
2: Yes. Thank Other you.
1: thoughts and questions so far. So we
0: made a, we made a list of, Garden features and characteristics. Keep those in your mind. Uh, we're going to be seeing them again. We're not going to read Exodus twenty-five to twenty-seven, uh, the bit of scripture that really details the composition and layout of the tabernacle. But I'm just going to point a few things out, and these these things will be ways that it is it is like Eden. It's a it's a little mobile Eden with the Israelites as they move through the through the wilderness for those 40 years the tabernacle faced east that's that's one uh, eden mirror because remember the uh, the gate of eden is on the east side and the garden is on the east side of eden which is a larger region Uh, in eden god planted a garden in the east and then adam and eve are exiled eastward down the cosmic mountain the tabernacle was comprised of three distinct sections, each progressively more holy. So it had, you had the courtyard and then you had two rooms, one in a in a rectangular shape. And at the back on the Western side of the one room um, is the Holy, Holy of Holies. So you know, the two rooms are the most holy place and the Holy of Holies. And each one, as you move toward the Holy of Holies, you're, passing through phases of increased holiness and which maps onto that layout, that vertical topographic layout that I was talking about with Eden. We have the other lands, the garden, and at the center of the garden is the tree of life. So these two things should, we should understand them as overlaid on top of each other. Uh, Let's see what else the table inside the holy place, the first room uh, has the bread of the presence on it. There's a lampstand, a very ornate um, lampstand that is to represent the tree of life. There's an incense altar, and all of these things have they're evoking things and they have meanings of their own that we're not going to go into right now. Uh, between the holy place and the most holy place, there's a curtain that separates the two. Uh, not just anybody could go into the most holy place. So there. The curtain represents the exile that the humanity is still separated from the immediate presence of God, but it also represents how God is mediating his presence into the world for his creation. So there's a separation and yet he's there. There's an imminence. Last thing to mention about the Holy of Holies, uh, which isn't necessarily in the, in Genesis one and two. But the Holy of Holies is a cube, which will become significant. That's just a very brief sketch of the tabernacle. Let's just go on to um, do the same thing with Solomon's temple. And then I'll point out one little verse in, the Psalm, in Psalm 74, and then we can try to thread some needles on, on what that means. In 1 Kings 6, you get a very intricate description of the temple. Uh, Solomon did not have creative freedom with this thing that he was making. He had exact instructions because it mirrored the heavenly temple, whatever that means. Uh, And what you see is that the temple is the tabernacle writ large. And just as uh, the tabernacle was a copy of Eden, so you get now a bigger and more grand copy of, of Eden. The temple has a three-part structure, the outer court, rep- mirroring the, the eastern lands of, of Genesis 2, and then the inner court inside the building itself has two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. So again, each one, as you go in towards God's presence, each one is uh, progressively more holy and more restricted. And here is a, uh, a couple verses in 1 Kings. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling. He covered them inside with wood and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress and skipping down a bit to verse 31. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and doorposts were five sided. He covered the doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold and spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So he also made the entrance to the nave doorpost of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. I think before I saw some of the connections we're, we're going to explore, I just thought this was kind of um, pedantic detail. Why, why, are we, why do we care about these boring measurements and um, architectural references? But I want to just pause here and, and say, what do you notice about how the temple is decorated? What stands out to you cherubim there's there are cherubim hmm just garden, like me,
2: garden me. stuff too there's what garden uh images plants flowers sort of.
0: yes, yes, yeah, standing in there would be it would feel like you're in um a a forest set, <laughs> palm trees. Flowers, pomegranates, mm-hmm. rendered, rendered with treasures. So it's got, things have gold overlaid on top of them. It would be bright if you put a light on. Yeah, that is not accidental. That is, it's all evoking Eden. That this is, this is the, uh, this is God trying to express uh, a paired set of meanings. Uh, for what, what happens when he draws near to his people. So he's, he's, he's just writing Eden, Eden, Eden in neon all over the place where his people are going to come and worship. Psalm 74, the psalmist writes this. This is about um, forces that oppose God, God's supremacy over them, but uh, it, it has a very interesting snapshot of what they do to the temple. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. This is Psalm 74. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. So isn't it interesting that the psalmist is drawing on this Temple-Eden connection to describe the, those who profane the temple as basically lumberjacks, those who are felling, felling forests. So over and over again, the Bible is, is drawing this connection between the temple and Eden. I, I want to just, we could spend the rest of the time talking about how the prophets use this garden imagery in their writings. But I want to just highlight a, a few things. As the Bible goes on, the, the connection between uh, human life in its most thriving form and obedience to God is really concretely made. And then that's that's kind of that's wrapped up in all this garden imagery. Um, so the people who are living with God are oaks of righteousness. You know, they become these trees, and the prophets really riff on that theme. And the opposite is also developed: that when humanity separates itself from God, the you get the opposite of these garden uh, images that we pointed out from Genesis two. So the prophets talk about famine, where there was. Uh, abundant food and you could, uh, all your physical needs were satisfied in the garden. This picture of the richness of life with God. So when you depart from God, uh, you, the prophets prophecy famine, for instance, Isaiah 51, 19, these two things have happened to you. Who will console you? Devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Or drought. The Eden was a place of abundant water. It's this rich image of the life of God pouring forth. Haggai 1, 10, and 11, uh, he writes, Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I've called for a drought on the land and on on the hills, on the, the grain, the new wine, the oil, and what the ground brings forth. So there's this inversion that when the prophets want to uh, pronounce judgment they they do it in many different ways and one of the one of the arrows in their quiver is to invert all these garden um, images of richness and life uh, and they turn it into um, a separation and death it's the anti-eden you get discord with animals as in jeremiah 9 uh, he writes, I will make Jerusalem a heap of ruins, a lair of jackals, and I'll make the cities of Judah a desolation. So where once uh, in, in the, when you, people are flourishing with God, in Genesis 2, you get life in accord with the animals. But when people depart from God, one of the markers of that is the animals become dangerous and they inhabit cities, instead of people Uh, the list goes on and on bad harvests uh things going wrong with food Uh, isaiah 5 5 is a rich image of thorns in a vineyard he writes and now i'll tell you what i will do to my vineyard i'll remove its hedge and it shall be shall be devoured i will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down i'll make it a waste Uh, and finally the the last trump that the prophets play is exile so the prophets before the exile are telling this time when just as humanity was cast out of the garden for turning away from God. So the, the people of God will be cast out of the garden of the promised land and taken away by the very the peoples of the nations that they were supposed to bless. And that happens. And then but the, the story is not over there remember, the whole Bible is the story of God finding a way to restore unity and connection with his people. So in Jeremiah 29, the prophet writes a letter to the exiles in Babylon. So if you're, if you're thinking, if you zoom out from the literal events of the story and put on this hat that we've been trying to develop about what is the meaning of directions, the meaning of kingdoms, uh, the meaning of all these symbols. So the the people of God have been exiled from the garden, and now they are in they're in the other lands. They're captive in the other lands. So what is the advice of God to His people in that scenario? Is it um, raise an army and destroy the kingdom you've been taken captive by? Try try a daring escape. Uh, it's it's something else. So in Jeremiah twenty nine. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. What does that remind you of? Let's, let's camp out here for a little bit. Hmm.
3: The direction about- that God gives. Naomi, in the beginning. what was that? Oh, the direction that God gives them in the beginning the garden to multiply and work and keep the earth.
0: Absolutely. Yep. Cultivate the earth, have dominion, multiply, increase, Mm -hmm. grow, build. What else?
2: What you said about the rivers always um, were for the flourishing of the nations.
0: Mm, mm -hmm. And now here they are taken against their will. And God says, seek, seek the flourishing of the city I've sent you to.
2: Almost like you could, you could be a, a little river now. For these, this, uh, this barren, bad land.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly it. Other thoughts? What else are you noticing? Don't you think it's interesting that they're told to plant gardens and yeah. eat their produce? It's if if the garden is the recurrence of the Eden motif. God is saying, make Babylon into Eden. Well, as long as you're there, that's, Ooh, that's oh your job.
1: God.
0: Yep, your, your mission isn't right now to get back to the promised land because I've brought you to the, the Eastern land so that you can be a blessing to them, which you see happening in the book of Daniel. That hmm. Daniel uh, enters the government and is, is a blessing there. But this was the calling on all of the exiles in their own small ways. They were supposed to relaunch Eden. And just as it always was supposed to, it's supposed to spread out from them, family to family, place to place.
2: Isn't that interesting that you're saying like what in a sense was a, a discipline or chastisement, even for their disobedience? It's like God's reversing it in a sense. Like when you said they don't even have to go back; just start doing. Uh, that's really beautiful. Like it's not just like this hopeless. Go sit there and 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 uh, sulk over it, you know.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah, I find a lot of beauty and and inspiration in that. Mm-hmm. So often we want to change our circumstances, and if any if anyone had just experienced you know, awful circumstances, they they certainly had. But at least in this case, the message of the prophet to the people is plant gardens. Make make Eden where you are. But we're going to jump ahead to John 1. John writes in his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. This is a sneaky connection to... Our, our garden theme, but does anyone anyone want to reflect on why I might have put this here?
3: Can you say it again, Andy?
0: Yeah, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is John one let Let's just go there on
3: Step Bible. So in the, um, in the Orthodox Church, our icons of creation all have Jesus, um, Jesus in them as the word creating um, at each day of creation. So that's what I always think of.
0: Mm. The icons have Jesus as the word creating. That's interesting. Yeah. The word became flesh. And so here, John's, he's certainly tying, he's bringing in Genesis 1. Yeah, it's, it's all over John 1. It's clearly something that is a, a connection that's being made. What I want to point out here is dwell. Uh, the word is skenu, which is the Greek word for tent. Um, or it, it's in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is the word, uh, a variation of this word is used for the tabernacle. So so, sometimes you can think of this as the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. So going along with the garden theme we have today, if, if God, when he tabernacles, and when he comes tabernacles among his people, uh, just as the tabernacle was full of Eden markers. So too, you might then suspect that when God takes on flesh, he'd be talking about Eden and doing Eden things. And sure enough, in the gospels, that's exactly what you see. Jesus is, he's tapped right into the theme of the garden. And Eden is just, you can see Eden through the spaces and in so many of his stories and, and words. For instance, John 15, when he says, I'm the true vine, And my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it may may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. We're going to look at John 15 more in the following week. But I just wanted to quickly say, I I don't think this is a, it's a stretch to say um, that this is tree of life language. In the Hebrew mind and in the Hebrew language, uh, there they did not have the, the fine um, colorations of different types of plant life in the same way that we do. Uh, the Hebrew word for eights is the, the Hebrew word for tree is eights, and an eights is a lot of other things too—a vine, a bush. Um, lots of things are eights, a branch. So there's this sense that he is the true. Vine uh, is is it's it's close in the Hebrew mind to uh, tree language as well. So he's basically saying, "I am the true tree. If you eat of me, you'll live." Which is should be ringing tree of life bells for us.
3: I have a question.
0: Yep.
3: Uh, do you think that there's any connection between all of the Eden language and tree language and the fact that Christ would have been trained as a carpenter?
0: I don't know. I've never thought about that. It's a, it's a good question, Betsy. Perhaps. Mm-hmm. I guess I've always just interpreted that biographically. Not symbolically. I'll need to think about that.
3: In my experience, biographical and symbolic intertwine a lot.
0: <laughs> mm. Yeah, especially in works so densely crafted as the Gospels. Yeah, Once that's I- interesting.
2: Once I heard that, um, that uh, it was believed what he made was yokes for oxen and that there was really mm-hmm. a, a love that you had to have for the ox to make it uh, fit well, which, you know, goes with Matthew 11, like that he didn't just make like um, houses or furniture, but uh, the yoke. Anyway, that might an be a biographical. Take my yoke yes. upon you. Yes. No, mm. yes.
0: Oh, That's an interesting thought. I like
2: that. All right, all right and you're saying, "I." This is blowing my mind. You're saying that, um, like Jesus is the tr- so Jesus as the tree of life is like almost uprooting from the Garden of Eden and coming here. I've never thought of that—that that he is the tree of life to mm. us. That is, I mean, or or he grew from Eden or something like that. But so everything that the tree of life was he's like offering us again here.
0: Yes. Yeah.
2: That's really beautiful.
0: We'll go into greater depth next time on that. But yeah, in a nutshell, yeah, that the, the life in the tree of life, what the tree of life points toward is life with God. Mm -hmm. And so that in, in Christ, the exile is over and humanity is no longer separated from God, but we can abide in him. And if we do, we'll bear fruit. It's all, it's all Genesis 1 and 2 stuff. It's this abundance, um, spreading, multiplying, bearing fruit. And you see that all over the Gospels. Think about Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the wilderness. Not, not one that you might associate with um, gardens. But if you think about those markers we came up with from Genesis 2, you've got abundant food. In in the wilderness, so people are together, and it's like Jesus has this pop up Eden, where the the life <laughs> life starts to pour out of him, in the form of bread and fish.
3: I think it's interesting that um, in the the curse on Adam, it's that the you know thorns will grow up in the in the ground when you're trying to make food. And I always find the um, crown of thorns imagery of Christ's scourging very significant.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, I do too. (laughs) I I like that. Yeah. I I think none of that is accidental that thorns are mentioned in the curse and thorns are present in the redemption Mm -hmm. Jesus does on the cross. Yeah. That beautiful and painful image of a crown of thorns,
1: That's other sense. moments
0: of Jesus and the garden um, Matthew 13 the mustard seed, so he he likens the the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed which is the smallest of seeds, but then grows into a the greatest of all trees, and even the birds of the air can perch in its branches that it could, maybe it's just saying on a, a purely literal level, things start small and they grow. But it also, I think it's also tapping into this Eden imagery of, of abundance, of multiplication. Uh, if you think about that, that's basically what Jeremiah is telling the exiles to do in Babylon. Plant, plant small seeds and watch them grow into, into great trees. Think about the good soil that yields an abundant harvest. That parable, the parable of the soils. Uh, the workers who are given a vineyard to, you know, to work and to keep, you might say. Uh, but they renege on that calling. It's all, it's all wrapped up in the Eden um, connections. And then, of course, there Jesus finds himself in an actual garden a couple times. Uh, on the night before he was crucified, he goes to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's this very poignant moment where here you have the second Adam in a, in a garden just before his death. Uh, just as Adam was facing a choice that would mean his death. Uh, the choice is connected to fruit. Uh, with Adam and Eve, it was the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. With Jesus, he's begging God to let this cup pass from him. And that cup is, there's a whole symbolic trajectory about the, the cup of God's wrath. And it, it, it holds a fatal wine that sinners god will force sinners to drink and here he he is forcing himself to drink it you know jesus is saying i i will drink this but i ask that it would pass from me but i'll do your will so the second adam kneeling in the garden uh on pain of death determined to do the will of the lord to bring about to undo the curse of the first adam and to bring about redemption that will then spread throughout the world just as uh the garden of Eden was originally intended to spread and grow.
2: That's beautiful.
0: And then he's again spotted in the resurrection garden Ooh. in John 19 and 20. The first person that sees Jesus mistakes him for a gardener, which I think is not a coincidence. <laughs> Mary comes and she says, where have you taken my Lord? And there's this little note that she thought he was the gardener uh yeah this is it, this isn't a coincidence it's just subtle it's gathering john and the gospel writers are gathering all these old testament threads and and weaving them into to a new tapestry and as you begin to trace the threads the tapestry they're they're creating makes sense that jesus is the lord of the garden he is the place where uh, humanity can once again be with God and where the, ex- the experience of the life of God can uh, break through over and over again. And he's the true human who will work and keep creation uh, as Adam and Eve were meant to uh, after the fashion of the priests of the temple. Um, this idea that all of creation is God's temple and we are to minister inside it to bring forth new things, to multiply, to have dominion, all that Genesis one stuff uh, is all, it's all present here in this, this thing that uh, this garden trajectory, the church is also like a garden. Now, if you read through the epistles, the, the authors of the epistles are bringing in garden imagery to describe the nature of the church and uh, how it functions so the, the word, the church is a place where the word is sown and watered and uh, where a harvest is, is reaped. There's food. Uh, Christians are uh, those who bear fruit, the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. That just like a, a rich garden, there is there's abundant fruit that other people can come and eat from. Uh, but it isn't pomegranates and pineapples. It's uh, love and joy, and peace and kindness and all, all the fruit of the spirit. So this is getting into, it's kind of stripping away part of the imagery level uh, and getting into, okay, what does this actually look like in a human life when you plop down in Nashville or, I don't know, Birmingham or or wherever you are and you're saying, okay, God wants me to Plant a garden, to bear fruit, to, you know, to grow trees. Uh, what does that actually look like? I think it looks like the church um, giving the life of God to the world in, in ever-increasing concentric circles out from your, your time and your place and your, your people. Okay, in, in closing, let's go to the end of the Bible. Here you have the garden renewed, uh, John's apocalyptic image of the new creation. And there are a lot of um, connections to Genesis 1 and 2 and these garden, markers of the garden that we've been looking at. Uh, anybody want to call some out?
2: What, for, what chapter are you in?
0: Revelation 21 and 22. Okay. We've already talked about how in the first week when we were looking at the sea of chaos, here the sea is no more, Revelation 21.1.
2: Well, he's dwelling with them.
0: Right. Yes. He's
2: tabernacling with them. <laughs> the, the dwelling place
0: of God is now with with his people. Mm hmm. Yeah, verse he 21. rare
2: there. jewels again.
0: Rare jewels again, exactly. That is not an accident. Mm hmm. It's Eden. What else?
3: The spring of water, life.
0: The river of life is there. Yes. So moving forward to Revelation 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne.
2: Death is not there or mourning or crying in pain. And those are all actually all the uh, curses, you know, like you're, Mm. you're, you'll bear in, um, you know what I'm saying, that when you have babies, it'll hurt. uh, Sweat of his brow and all, Mm -hmm. but like he's saying, all of that is gonna be uh, erased.
0: Yes, the curse that was introduced in Genesis 3 is now finished. Mm-hmm, it's done. Mm-hmm.
2: The flourishing has begun.
0: <laughs> yeah, the tree of life is there.
4: Mm.
0: Mm-hmm, in Revelation 22, either side of the river is the tree of life. Its leaves were for the healing of the nations. And the nations are there. Mm. So you have um, not in these chapters, but previously you have uh, all, all of the nations bringing their glory into, into the new Jerusalem. Maybe it is in this, in, in 21. I think it might be. By its light, the nations walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut. So this ideal plan, a of God's creation where he, Uh, The peace and flourishing of of Eden would spread to the whole world is now realized so that the nations can come back into this new Eden and dwell with God. Shall we have some time for questions and discussion?
3: Uh, I don't know if this is um, accurate, but I noticed in that scripture, it sounded like the sort of geography of the symbolic place, was that the throne of God and the river were in the center of it, as opposed to there being um, like, oh, the people are further away from the center of holiness, if that makes sense.
0: In Revelation
3: 21?
0: Yeah. I think the point of that, or one of the points is that God is with the people now, so that they're throughout the Bible, f- from Genesis 3 on, there's been a separation. It's a curtain it's a dimensional barrier uh, between the visible and invisible world. But now uh, the people of God are with God and he's the one who wipes away their tears. Uh, they don't need son because he, they have them and he is there. He is their light. Mm. So this is about imminence going back to Genesis one and two. I want to hear some from some folks who haven't said much yet. I, can, I noticed that.
1: At the end, uh, at the last passage you showed it said that the barriers or the gates will be open, uh, but then it also, right after that, said that uh, only people who are whose name is in the book of life will be there. And I wondered about the idea of boundaries and hinterlands, mm. um, the ins, the outs, the goats, the sheep, how that all works.
0: Yeah, that's that's a great question. Yeah, there is there is a sense in which the exile is ended because humanity now has complete access to God, God's immediate presence. The separation is gone. Uh, But there's also a sense in revelation throughout the Bible that judgment remains so that it's not a sense of like, okay, everybody come in, but that some people will not be in. And that, and that there is a finality to that at the end as well. So I, I suppose in that sense, you could say the exile is over or, made permanent for um, those for whom it's made permanent. Did you want to pursue that anymore?
1: I just want a quick follow-up question or kind of musing is, so I wonder (laughs) what the edge of that boundary is. Is there nothingness on the, on the edge of that? Would there be any reason why someone in the garden or in this new garden would have any impetus or desire to step outside of this gate, even though it's open, it's open to what? what would be out there that would be desirable or is the whole planet then remade and redone? And why would you ever want to leave the garden?
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 What conceptually, I get what you're, what you're asking. Um, It's something I also wonder about. And I think for which we can only kind of speculate, you know, Uh, as far as the text goes, I, I don't think we should envision the gates as gates or even the garden as a garden. Uh, because the if you try to go too literal, especially with the end of Revelation, things get bizarre. Because the city is the city is a giant cube the size of North America. Like you, you get <laughs> the uh, that's what's coming down from the sky. You get the dimensions, and it's this golden cube that's like fifteen hundred miles on a side. So it must not be too literal, <laughs> otherwise th- that would be global catastrophe, not
4: <laughs> the age of paradise i also just. This is Tim, just to chime in on that question. But, Hi, Tim. Hey, it's good to see all y'all. I'll, I'll turn my video on now. But, but uh, so the gates in, in Old Testament villages and towns were, you know, places of deliberation and whatnot. But also, you know, how towns were protected. So, like, what I think of when I think of a gate being opened is that there's no threat. I don't know if it's like border to another world or something i I don't think about that. I think about no threat and um you know, like the gates are also where your like reputation would be defended or like disputes would be settled, things like that like the it's like almost like there's there's an a freedom from conflict and a freedom from threat with the gates open
0: you're going back into the the function of the city gates yeah in the old testament in ancient world Mm -hmm. yeah i like that thought what else are you wondering or thinking
4: there's so much temple language in the end of revelation Mm -hmm. and that's one and i know we've talked about it a little bit in this group but the you know the genesis passage you think about garden and sort of geography but it's it's temple language um comparatively to especially at other sort of m- myths and sort of world creation stories um and temple sort of installation blessing liturgies uh when you compare ancient texts so that um i can attribute some of this to mr marsh but the it's beautiful language when you kind of narrow in that sort of wide angle from the beginning of Genesis to what he would have called the icon or the uh, the idol at the center of the temple is not an object of wood or stone. It's the living man and woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, that temple language, which I think is there in Genesis, but also, you know, in the whole building of the temple and later celebrations in the temple and the center of the temple and Jewish life is there at the end of revelation too. Mm. Uh, but the mm-hmm. sense that, you know, the same things that Jesus was upset with in the new Testament and its temple worship uh, are no longer frustrations with the openness and the sort of universal blessing of the,
0: mm. you know, the mm-hmm. temple. Yeah, it's interesting. The revelation, the end of Revelation, is full of temple language, and yet there is no temple.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Revelation twenty-one, verse twenty-two, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so there's this sense that this is tapping into this idea that the temple, the point was never the temple.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The temple was always supposed to kind of fulfill itself into obsolescence, and the the original thing wasn't wasn't the temple. Anyway, which is something that the um, Jesus kind of wrestled with his contemporaries about, like it's the focus isn't on the temple. In fact, destroy this one. And, you know, in three days, I'll raise it up again because he's talking about the he's kind of transfer the idea of, you know, this isn't the temple, the building of stone. That's not the significant thing. The significant thing is I am here before you and what the temple was is what I am. It, It was pointing to me. And then it it kind of points backward. You you almost could think of it as the temple was just a an echo of Eden. You know, sometimes we can think of the temple as a primary thing, but actually the temple was the temple just because it pointed to Eden. And that's why it looked like Eden. And the the, the significant thing is is Eden. And then there's all these broken images of it uh, throughout the, the course of history. And Tim, I, I love your point that in, in, in a pagan temple, you the closer you get to the center of it. You get uh, you get this um, the image of the God mm-hmm. Where, but in Eden, the closer you got to the center of it, you, you got God's image, man and woman. Uh, he, he made beings that were his image to then go spread spread the garden everywhere. Mm-hmm. And there's no temple in the new creation because all of creation is holy now. So this, that, that's what that giant cube means. Right. Do you remember the cube from the tabernacle, the most holy place? And then it's it's 15 feet on a side back then. And then it gets a little bigger in the stone temple. And now it's just huge. Uh, It's symbolically covering all of creation. This giant, enormous golden cube bigger than the moon. Uh, It's it's referring to the fact that all of creation is. God's immediate presence now, now that sin has been done away with.
2: The city apparently is the bride and that those two images clash, you know, like in in our modern, modern lens. But the bride is what he's very, um, you know, he gave his life for the bride. You know, it's like a, there's quite a loving thing. So I think you're right. Our modern lens of city, it's like garish to me. But you're saying it would be in their mind a, uh, a beautiful, uh, maybe a place. I, I I don't know. I've always had a trouble with this.
0: Yeah, there, there's a sim a symbol laden meaning layer in there that we have to um, swim through or jump across or something like that. It's the city is not a city, and the bride is not a bride, but they're <laughs> all you, you know. they they're all ways of saying you. You and God, and God with His people forever, um, and the the distinctive thing about why it's a city and why it's a, uh, why it's a bride and why it's why it's a golden cube, instead of just saying, well, why doesn't why doesn't God just lay it all out propositionally? Um, I, th- I think part of that is he's he's using these meanings that have been built gathering momentum across all of scripture. And they're kind of all landing in revelation 21 and 22 and in one spot to create this very dense, rich, um, stacked meaning sandwich. And so it's a city and it's a bride and it's, it's a giant golden cube. And then we're supposed to just follow all those back and be edified through the journey of wondering why bride, what's, what's going on with brides in the bible what's what's going on with cubes and gold and gemstones and rivers and trees
3: is there an aspect like with the city too that in order for humans to like participate in making it there's you know like creativity and we're cultivating things and so there's kind of like an invitation and like cultivating the garden it's like a garden city because there's like an honoring of our image of godness in that or something
0: Yeah. Do you mean in the sense of making things
3: like to make for there to be a city that people have to make things and create and Mm. cultivate, which seems like part of the call.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. The way I understand it is that God, we, we often think about the Garden of Eden as perfect, like this idea of perfection and paradise and we lost it and we've got to get back to paradise but in, in another way it it was it was harmonious and full of peace but also unformed um so god god didn't do all the work himself he created something and I called it good and then made little creators that would go on and, and make stuff like cities and you see, as soon as, as soon as they leave the garden, they just start making, making, making. And in Genesis four, there's this uh, symphony of creativity and uh, invention, but because it's in the wake of the fall, all of the invention is used to oppress and destroy and dominate rather than the opposite, uh, which is what oh. it was intended for. Um, so I think, I think cities, it was always supposed to grow from garden to garden city um, but because of the fall, when you see cities appear in Genesis four, they're dangerous, scary places. Instead of like this city that's being evoked here, which is a, a piece of a place of peace and flourishing, and um, where there's where God wipes away your tears, there's no mourning.
2: It would be like a maybe I'm going to think of it like a a a garden, but like all the people in it, was it in Lord of the Rings, you know, the healing place, you know, like uh, the sit, if there's just Adam and Eve, that's just them. But a city you need, you have a lot of people, but the church would be all the people are working for the benefit of all the people. And that would be the bride, which is something we rarely see here, even in the church, Mm. you know, but maybe that's what you're saying. Like, all of the people are working for healing and, and beauty and love and love their husband.
0: Mm. Yeah. I think Tolkien Tolkien has the best pictures in literature of what the new creation could be like in that. That's what he's going for with the elves that they create these centers of peace and flourishing and uh, joy where they, everyone is safe and happy.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That would be a good city.
1: (laughs) That would be a good city. Mm -hmm. Yeah.